Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 625 with my guest, Evan Shad. Um, I'm Paul, uh, I forgot my name for a second. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It is more like a waiting room. That doesn't suck. The website for this uh, podcast is mentalpod.com, and mentalpod is also the social media handle that you can uh, follow us at. I hope you survived the holidays. Glad you're still standing. Um, I'm always nervous when I come back from a, a, a break in January and I've put together a new opening montage. And I'm always afraid that it's not going to be good enough, that people will be like, eh, he's just repeating himself. And uh, shout out, by the way, to uh, Patreon uh, subscribers. I put a little test version of it out there and got feedback from them before I decided on the, the, the final montage. And I feel good about it. I feel like maybe I'm worthy as a human being based on that uh, one-minute snippet that I put together and people validating me. Is is that unhealthy? I, um, I'm a little bummed out that uh, my insurance company is dragging their feet with approving my uh, shoulder surgery. I was supposed to have it in December. And uh, I pay $1,400 a month for my health insurance. <laughs> and they've denied it. Oh. Oh, sometimes, isn't it weird sometimes how the larger an insult is, the less mad you get about it? Like, I will get more mad at just like a dirty look a stranger gives me, you know, in a restaurant or a coffee shop than my own physical survival. I don't know if you watched the World Cup, but that was kind of exciting. Uh, I was happy for for Argentina and for uh, Lionel Messi. I love love seeing great athletes complete that last piece of the the puzzle for, for their career. Uh, But I also kind of really wanted Croatia to win. I love underdogs. I was torn. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And uh, for those of you that that aren't soccer fans, um, how do I explain the World Cup? Siri, what is the FIFA World Cup? FIFA World Cup is a global soccer event hosted every four years by a rotating country chosen by officials from the governing body based on the formula of wealth minus migrant deaths divided by hotel blowjobs. The first set of games are called the group stage, where past empires have a chance to humiliate former colonies with the most successful two from each of the eight groups advancing to the knockout rounds, where a single loss eliminates a beloved player's popularity. Each side begins the game with a goalkeeper and a cast of 10, but may lose a performer if they collide with the other team, and the opposing actor arcs higher onto the grass and wiggles longer. Occasionally actors from both teams land at the same time, 
and must be judged by an impartial choreographer looking for originality in holding both the ankle and face. The tournament is won by the country that survives all four elimination games triggering its hardcore fans to reverse course and riot in favor of immigration. I hope that helped to clear things up. I was talking to a, a friend of mine, and he is struggling with financial fear. He's uh, been in, looking for a job, and he's a bright guy, personable, um, and and he is just in total fear about it. And he's got six months worth of rent money before there's the threat of having to move back in with his parents. And, you know, one of the things that I was saying was, number one, I relate. I think if I were in the same situation, I would be filled with anxiety. But and here's where I think making outreach phone calls and, and opening up to people is, is helpful, is you're able to get an objective perspective from that person. And, and I feel like I was able to help give him another perspective, which, which is six months is a long time. And the important thing is that he is doing the work in trying to find a job rather than just sitting frozen and freaking out. And I like to look at it as like a scientific experiment. You do your half. You, you bring your half of the chemical reaction, which is doing what you can. And then it, the rest of it is up to the universe. It's on its own schedule of what it's going to bring to the equation. And then I think if you can truly say, okay, I've I've put in a decent amount of work trying to find a job, then, then just say, okay, let's see what the universe has in store for me. And it's probably not going to be on the schedule that I want it to be on. But that's that to me is where the serenity prayer is just condenses it. Having a sense of what you have control over and what you don't is, I think, one of the most important tools in life. And if I've achieved anything emotionally, mentally, in the decades that I've been getting help, is... uh getting a greater understanding on what I can work on and what I can let go of. I think there's a lot of people that that probably relate to that, just feeling that, oh, I need to be controlling more things. I think a lot of times it's just, no, we actually need to let go of more things. Let's do some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey and a woman who calls herself Velour says, uh, do we owe interactions to our parents if they aren't abusive? My father is an awkward, unpleasant person who I've never enjoyed spending time with. During the pandemic, he made choices that motivated me to stop seeing him entirely. I ignore his calls and text messages. He's not abusive, but I prefer living a life without him in it. However, I found out from my brother that our father is autistic, and now I wonder if it's unfair that I ignore him. But honestly, I just don't enjoy spending time with him. Do I owe my father contact? For one, that is not for me to say. I think that's a decision that you need to arrive at yourself. But I think a really important question to ask yourself 
and this might help you make that decision, is what is healthy for you? Because it's, it's not necessarily about assigning a title to a situation. Um, it's about saying, you know, I deserve to feel mentally healthy. And whether that involves you having him in your life or limiting it to just a tiny amount of interaction in your life, that's, that's not for somebody else to say. That's, that's for you to decide. But um, it's hard. It's hard. But I think the more you focus on that, what, how does it affect me? You know, one of the, one of the things that, Gracie, by the way, somebody thought that uh, Gracie's name was crazy, that that's what I was saying. No, uh, she is crazy, but her name is Gracie. Um, when I cut contact with my mom, one of the things that led to it, it had, it was not based on the things that happened in childhood. It was her inability to listen to my boundaries today and how her her unwillingness or inability to do that was affecting my mental health. I would be depressed for days, sometimes weeks after just having a, a, a short phone call with her. And maybe somebody who is mentally and emotionally stronger and more spiritual than me would be able to maintain it. But I had to, um, you know, like talking about the job thing, say, I this is where I'm at. And um, I deserve, I'm, I'm, I'm putting the work in, going to therapy, going to support groups. And I, it's, it is what it is. And I have to take care of myself. This is uh, also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself today. She says, uh, when did you realize you had a mental illness and uh, got into treatment? Um, it was late 1999, early 2000, and I was thinking about killing myself 50 times a day. My life looked good on paper, and uh, actually, I'd been in therapy before then, but this is when I went to see a psychiatrist and, and got on meds. And uh, yeah, when you're thinking about killing yourself 50 times a day, um, that's it, it, usually a good <laughs> And I remember my very first appointment with a psychiatrist. Uh, she said, so what, you know, what, fill me in, what's going on? And I just kind of, you know, vomited everything, the suicidal thoughts, the, you know, it's just feeling like I just didn't have the energy or the motivation to continue and on and on and on and on. And I remember she was taking notes and at one point she rolled her eyes. And I was like, yeah, I think it was probably the right decision to come to come ask for help. Uh, well, I was a little insulted. This is also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Paul from San Diego. And he writes, I've developed an eating disorder and some sort of facial body dysmorphia to the point where I develop social anxiety because of the pressures to look a certain way and I worry too much about what others think of me. I thrive off of people's compliments and plummet when I don't receive them. I know others' opinions should not matter, but what advice would you give 
me to not give a fuck about what others think and to be happy in my own body. That, I feel like, is over my head in terms of what to suggest to you because I feel like those are questions for a professional um, because I, I don't have experience with either of those things. I, I'm not going to weigh in on it, but I will say this, you deserve to feel content in your own body. And I, I don't believe when, when we have an issue that is centered in our brain distorting something, we need input from outside that brain. Just, just my opinion about that. So I hope, I hope you can make some headway with that um, because you deserve to feel comfortable in the only body that you've been given. Isn't it amazing how, how much we will hate our body? And it's, it's, <laughs> we can't get another body. Why would we not make friends with it? Why would we not be kind to it? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I've talked to my uh, therapist, Heidi, on Monday, and I don't know, we got on the subject of my childhood and my relationship with my parents. And it kind of surprised me as I was talking about things, I, all of these great memories were coming forward, um, things that they did for me and ways that they showed up for me. And it just reminded me of how complicated our relationships can be with people, that there can be both awful, neglectful, even abusive things, and also these kind of nurturing, amazing, fond memories. I don't know. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash metal so they know you came from the podcast and then one more survey before we get to the uh, interview this is filled out by a guy who calls himself offer and uh, he writes I was in the grip of addiction had been running between job interviews with a bottle of whiskey and stimulants hadn't slept or eaten in two days, then got the great news that I got accepted to my dream job as I was driving dream job as I was driving back home and after I snorted the last line of powder, feeling finally I got a chance to get my shit together, I got a message from the girl I was dating that we need to talk. Now the high was starting to wear off. I went and drank half a bottle of whiskey, preparing myself for the bad news that I'm gonna get dumped. But at the same time, but at the same time, bought her her favorite chocolate just in case things will not go south. We met. I was drunk. She tried to express herself. I reacted with anger and walked away. I called her after a few minutes as I was driving, 
asking her in desperation, is it final? She said, yes. The box of chocolates suffered my agony and frustration. I punched the box. Chocolate went flying all around the car and on me. And at that time, a woman came to my car window telling me, move away, you're blocking the lane. Covered in chocolate, I told her to go fuck herself and went on my way. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) I'm here with Evan Shad, who is a... uh, a buddy of mine, I'd say relatively recent friends. We met in uh, a support group, and you were sharing the other night um, about group therapy. And I was like, holy fuck, I've been doing this podcast for 11 years, and we've never talked, at least that I can recall, uh, about group therapy. But there's a lot of other stuff that I want to uh, talk to you about. First of all, welcome. Um, you're how old? I am 30. Um, Evan is also a ultra marathon runner. You do some crazy shit. Have you done bad water? No, no. So that's a 200 plus, no, 140. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten to, uh, so the farthest weak. I've gone is 70. I'm you're weak. weak. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have a follow up in two yeah, years. Yeah. Let's Daddy see. raised a quitter. I think that's all we need to know. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Right. Um, it, uh, You've been coming to our support group for how many years? Four and a half. Four and yeah. a half. It'll be five in March. Yeah. So, and that's incredible. I mean, and it's been so cool watching you grow and um, shed your old ideas. Thank you. I, I mean, that's it. It's a slow progression in the mirror, but then yeah. periodically you'll have a share, or you hear some hear somebody else share, and you'll pull something from that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean. Those meetings essentially articulate how I feel when other people share until I'm able to articulate it myself. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's a really interesting thing about recovery, therapy, whatever it is, is you begin to get in language to express what was unexpressible, what was just previously a feeling, often a suffocating feeling of mm-hmm. something that you couldn't put into words. Yeah. Well, for me, it was this incredible numbness and and glimpses of feeling, but having not felt, I mean, the first year of my sobriety and the first year of therapy was a lot of what is anger? What is sadness? What is, and I would describe to my therapist how I felt by like creating an example of this is how someone would feel in this circumstance. And she would have to, you know, calm me down and say, okay. And she'd pull out, she has this laminate, uh, emoji diagram that shows Mm -hmm. like all the different sad, happy, angry, uh, resentful uh, guilt, 
Um, and she would just point out, say, like, pick. And and that was, yeah. I mean, it did also, that help? It did help. Um, and it's interesting because it also, besides opening up my vocabulary and my understanding to articulate how I was feeling, it also surfaced the feelings of uh, uh, frustration in myself and feeling like I can't do this or, you know, how silly I can't even tell you how I'm feeling right now. And and then, of course, there's more deep. Yeah. So much there. Yeah. yeah. The, bo- the boxes got it all yeah. compartmentalized. The and... onion continues to be peeled yeah. in every way. Uh, when do you think you started feeling numb or do you think it's it's you don't remember a time when you weren't numb i do um i mean really it's interesting so when i was a young kid i was raised in a loving family middle class uh and uh loving parents had a younger sister and my younger sister was uh you know, she was perfect. I mean, in, in all ways, she got good grades in elementary school, um, was really good in the things that she was into doing. And, um, and it's interesting because I was raised going to like a private Christian school and going to church and things like that. Any, um, any uh, particular denomination? No, no, it was just standard, um, Christianity. And so we went to church on Sundays and things like that. And, uh, yeah, I guess I just, from as early as I can remember, you know, the typical not feeling comfortable in my own skin and mm-hmm. feeling like perhaps in my sister's shadow because she was seemingly good at everything and everybody gave her high praise. And when I would do something, I, it always felt like I broke something whenever I, I touched it or mm-hmm. I was being uh, coached or um, criticized in, in how you're not doing it right or something like that. Or I remember, I think my first grade teacher telling my parents something to the effect of um, he has a lot of potential, but, and then going into, you know, whatever it was. And and, uh, And what was the but? I mean, I don't know. I wasn't interested in sports. Um, You know, I had weird interests. I was into GI Joes and and airplanes and and watching the History Channel when I was like in first grade and everybody else wants to play kickball and things like that. So there was kind of already this really small niche of, you know, the two or three friends that I had at that age and feeling kind of like in this already small environment at a private Christian school, um, there was just something different about me, something I just felt othered in a lot of ways. And my parents, um, super supportive, right? Always, you know, looking back, I appreciate the fact that they pushed me into try sports. And then the next season, if I don't want to do it again, it's like, okay, great. You tried it. Let's try something else. Um, but you know, there was just this unknown feeling of, uh, me just being me is not, is not enough. And if you wanted to try something, were they supportive of that? Yeah. Um, when I was maybe, I don't know, 10 years old, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, was when I started to get into, you know, maybe wanting to increase my my positioning in the social hierarchy at mm-hmm. school and suddenly you're into girls and things like that. Um, and I got into music and playing guitar. And for the first time I found like I was good at something. And I remember I did like six months, maybe a year of lessons. And then after that it was all self-taught, but I got really into it. And for the first time I was starting to get praise and people saying, Hey, you're really good at this. And, um, and I mean, that was, really amazing. Do you feel like that was your first sense of self? Yes. 100%. Do you still play? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not as much as I used to, but, uh, but I still jam and, um, 
and it's it's amazing to get into it later in life now because I see it in such a different, more artistic way. Whereas then it was like a tool. It was a tool to gain praise and acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, But it was interesting because for the first time receiving that feeling of, you know, people introducing me as like, hey, this is my friend Evan, he shreds on the guitar. Mm -hmm. Like that was really amazing. But there was also this like imposter syndrome that went with it. That it was this like um, very... You know, it, it could go away at any moment. Uh, seize, seize this while we can, and also too, there was this desperation of like keep the ball rolling in whatever this direction was, and and it, that direction ended up leading me into uh, meeting some older friends who were, I think, like three years older than me. So by this point, I'm maybe like thirteen, fourteen years old, and they're seventeen, juniors in high school. Mm-hmm starting to experiment with smoking pot with, mm-hmm. you know, them stealing beers from neighbors' garages and us drinking at the park. And, uh, and I went in full bore because, you know, as we talk about a lot in recovery, that first drink, that first smoke, immediately everything was better. Immediately mm-hmm. that, that feeling of, um, being an other or feeling like I'm not enough or like I have to deepen my voice or puff my chest out. However it is like suddenly none of that mattered. And, um, so I hit the ground running really fast. And within, I think, like, short, pretty short order, I got kicked out of school because I, I got all in and was smoking pot at school and things like that and, and starting to uh, take pills, like just randomly, pills from a, not even researching and things like that. And I got kicked out of that private Christian school, which at first I was really excited about because I thought, oh, great, now I get to go to public school. And, and I have friends now in public school. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents, of course, were, were not really into it. And, of course, now I'm starting to get into a lot of trouble. Um, and then I proceeded to get kicked out of public school for the exact same thing. Like I, I was also – I was still a pretty shy kid at this time, but just masking it with like, you know, I'm ahead of the curve, uh, hang, having older friends and, mm-hmm. you know, being the guitar guy. Um but in a matter of a couple months, I wasn't going to school anymore. And uh, were you hiding it, or your parents? No, they knew, of course. And um, how they handle like, how they handle that? So, I mean, I got into a lot of trouble. I get grounded. Uh, they took the door off my uh, bedroom door for the whole. You know, their their whole thing was privileges. You have privileges, you lose privileges, you gain them back. And um, so, of course, I resented them a lot at this time. But I was full bore into the one thing that I wanted, which was acceptance and some feeling of wholeness that I wanted from my peers. And, um, so in any event, uh, and it's so weird when I talk about this cause it is such an interesting experience, but, uh, we went to, I had tickets to a concert and I went to this concert with my dad and with my friends and, um, we get home, I go to bed, I'm woken up later and it's these two bodyguards and they're like, we're going to school. And they handcuff me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm 15 years old, I think. And I say, of course, what are you talking about? I, I don't have a school to go to. And they said, nope, we're going to school. And there was a duffel bag packed and my parents were there crying. And uh, they're walking me out the door. And, and uh, you know, I, I had no energy to fight or to kick or scream or anything. I think I flipped my parents off from behind my back as I was walking out. Um, and they just drove me through the desert for like six hours. And we ended up, um, at this boarding school, kind of like not a military school, like from that sense, we did a lot of marching and it was 
a lot of regulations and, and a strict schedule, but it was a boarding school for troubled teens. And I was there for a year and a half, I think, a little, maybe close to two years. And that was where I became a master of disassociation and just completely numbing everything. With drugs and alcohol? No, with just mentally. like Checking out, tuning out? Completely checking out, tuning out. Being in one place and mentally... Um, I mean, I used to, cause when I got there, obviously it was really sad and I felt like I was abandoned, given up on all these things like that. And, and looking back too, I know that my parents just did what they thought was right. Right. Mm-hmm. They had no options. And, um, and of course, and it's interesting cause now 16 years later, they don't really like to talk about it because yeah. they they feel really guilty and, and shameful about it. And, um, know. hearing you talk about it, I'm like, that, that sounds like some, good examples of parents giving their kid consequences. Yeah. You know what? It's not enabling him. If I were in their position, I would hate to say that I would do the same thing, but like when you don't know what to do and you have only a few options on the table, I mean, doing a geographic and getting them into a controlled Mm -hmm. environment, it's a gamble. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think it was a net benefit at the end of the day. It was what it is. And, um, so anyways, I get there and I'm super resentful of them for like the first six months, um, you know, and, and it was the system where you did homeschooling on these computers there. And they also had this program where you level up and every day, if you don't get infractions, you, you get a certain amount of points and um, all kinds of, they had seminars every nine weeks or something on like, you know, communication skills, positive uh, relationship skills, things like that. Um, so I learned a lot while I was there. So you were, were paying attention oh, uh, yeah. during the schooling part. I had to. Yeah, I'm there. But I remember walking the track uh, during PE and telling myself out loud that my birthday was, my birthday is really February 23rd, 92. Telling myself my birthday is April 26, whatever, 2006 or 2007, whatever year it was. Because that was the date that I showed up at that boarding school. And the point was, because somebody told me, if you convince yourself there's no life prior to this, you won't miss home so much. You won't miss all your friends. You won't think that your parents are going to come pick you up tomorrow. Uh, you'll just be here, and this is all you'll know. And uh, and it worked. It, it It's wow. a weird thing to like hypnotize yourself in that way. I can't remember who told me about it, but it really worked. And, and I... Kind, I didn't stop becoming homesick, but it was like I just reset my brain. And it was like, okay, this is where I'm at. This is the – and I had fun times. A bunch of men, you know. So, so would you say co-ed. it lessened the homesickness or it gave it a context that made it less intense? It cemented over it so I couldn't feel it. Gotcha. So that's where that numbing plays in, right? And And convincing myself, covering up. I got really into – uh, reading self-help books while I was there. Um, it really, I mean, diametrically changed my personality. I was a really introverted, shy kid before that. And while I was there, I learned how to be extremely outgoing. And, and did you read those on your own? I did, yeah. So they had a big library. And so I remember reading like The Power of Positivity and The Secret and uh, all these other things, um, you know, like Tony Robbins stuff. And, and like, if you think you can you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and it was empowering. Like I remember thinking my way into a better state of mind that, than I was. And, um, 
And so it was really just a wild experience. And, and we had daily therapy, which was very much like group therapy, um, where somebody shares and then they take feedback from other people within your, your group, right? They had groups were of uh, about 30, 30 other boys. Um, and let me just interject yeah. at, 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 at this point for the listener who isn't familiar with the difference between group therapy and support groups. In support groups, uh, typically there is no what they call crosstalk where you address what someone else shared. You just share about your own experience. And, um, you know, there's some, some lines get blurred in not necessarily in critical ways, but in ways um, that it's, it's clear that there's no, no malevolence in the, in the crosstalk, especially when it's a group of people that have known each other for years. But as you're saying, in group therapy, it's encouraged. So yes. you were saying. Yeah. And so, and again, this is in boarding school, a bunch of 15, 16, 17 year old boys. Um, so we daily had to share. And, and one of the rules was everybody had to share at least once a week. And, uh, and I kind of dreaded it because I would share and my feedback was always the same. We don't think you're being genuine. We don't think you're telling the truth. We, you know, it's just... And, and other people, meanwhile, are sharing and they're crying. They're showing tears. They're having that lip quiver. They're having the physical appearance of some kind of honest um, emotion. And part of the program there was uh, you would be voted up by your peers into higher levels, which had more privileges and things like that. And, of course, you could graduate out and go home if you reached whatever these levels were. And, um, I mean, the fastest person to ever graduate, I think was like over a year. So it's, it's not a quick process, right. but, um, I really gave up on that. I just thought I'm just going to do homeschooling here as fast as I can graduate high school. And then my parents will have no choice, but to pick me up. And, uh, and, and when I would have to share in those group things, I would kind of just make shit up. Like I would share about this or share about that. And I mean, I would go as far as holding my eyeballs open so that they would produce tears, right? They get all dry and irritated. And, and I feel like probably people saw through that, but again, this was this like desperate attempt to, to get the approval from my peers. And, and, and was it that there was nothing that you could draw on to share or you were hiding something that you didn't feel comfortable sharing? I think I was just so insecure because when I tried to share about something that was real, I don't, the tears wouldn't come. I mean, a couple times they did, but like, I didn't have this, this show that other people I felt could have. And it's interesting. So going back to Christianity and Christian private school, we would go on these, um, uh, trips periodically and I would see the person next to me, like at 12 years old, having this like spiritual experience where they're crying, they're accepting Christ into their life. And I remember looking around thinking, like, is this a joke? Like, am I, did I not drink the punch? Like, mm -hmm. like truly feeling othered in that way. And uh, so going back to boarding school, like there was just this feeling of like, why can't I sh show this, this thing that, that other people are showing? And, um, and, you know, I had a lot of great experiences w from that. Was there an answer? No. As to why? I mean, we didn't have therapists there. So right. it was really just like there were staff members who would kind of guide us and things like that, but there was no one-on-one -on -one therapy where right. somebody would probe and ask those kind of questions. How about in your self-talk? Were there things you told yourself? Yeah. Oh, the self-talk was um, there's a goal and we need to do these things 
to achieve this goal. And the goal is I need love, approval, praise from my peers. Uh, I got to get out of here somehow. Right. Um, and, and just kind of like, you know, you alluded to the ultra marathon running now. Um, when I find something I'm good at, I try to lean all into it because it's something I'm good at and it naturally feels good to do things. And, uh, so like at that boarding school, homeschooling, I was burning through classes so fast and it was something I was really good at. And I mean, there were entire courses that I was doing in like 10 days, like English 11, I think it was the fastest I did in like 10 or 12 days. And, um, so I ended up graduating high school in roughly that two year period. And I was there for a couple more months, just bored out of my mind for the school time, tutoring kids and things like that. And then finally I got picked up. And at that point I had kind of developed this super outgoing power of positivity. Um, I'd redeveloped the relationship with my parents by writing letters to them and things like that. And, and it was interesting because I got to really just learn how to manipulate, right. In this show way, it was, it was people pleasing in every way. And it's, you know, I wanted certain things. I started to get those certain things, um, a feeling of closeness with certain people. Um, you know, I felt a deep closeness with my parents towards the end of my time there because I could tell in the letters that, you know, they wanted me home and, and there was, um, they could have picked me up at any moment, but, and I kind of resented them sometimes too, because I would lose a best friend randomly. Like, you know, I would have a friend there for however many months and then they get called on the radio to go to the front office and I'd never see them again. Oh, that had to be hard. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, that was probably the most real of the shares when I was there in therapy because it was like Kyle was there for 12 months and Kyle's gone. No goodbyes. And we were actually not allowed to speak of people after they left because, um, yeah, it was kind of a wacky rule. Um, but anyways, long story short, uh, I finally did get picked up. I had a great, a good relationship with my parents, immediately jumped into community college. And it was kind of like I got to hit the reset button, um, started to kind of develop new friend group, going to school. And I mean, at that point, I think I was, I think I was actually 16 at that point. And, you know, there was a feeling of insecurity of going to community college at, at almost 17 years old and not wanting to garner any kind of negative attention that I'm young, two years younger, almost a year younger than, than everybody else there. And so I actually lied about my age and it was this weird lie that I kept going on for like two years until I was about 20, 21. Cause at that point, all my new friends were turning 21 and going to Vegas and I couldn't go or I had to get fake IDs. And mm -hmm. so that was just kind of like another weird example of just living this lie that was just driven by these insecurities and, um, putting on the show, putting on the show. Yeah. And when it would get close to my birthday, I would uh, not make a big scene about my birthday or like, you know, my close, close friends knew my, my real age. Um, and when I would tell them, they would just kind of laugh and be like, you didn't need to lie to us. And I would just kind of say, yeah, I know. But, you know, there's just this negative attention being 17 years old in college, right, mm -hmm. that I was just so afraid of. And, um, you know, from that point to like 21, all was good. It was a lot of fun. There was this... The drugs weren't out of control? Um, no, I remember when I drank and used again, and I remember there was a weight on my, my shoulder of like, I, I felt disappointed because at that point I hadn't done it since before boarding school. Mm -hmm. And, um, so maybe, you know, like a two hour clean period, but 
there was also this feeling of, hey, like I'm, I'm in community college, like I can moderate this. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of house parties back then. There was a lot of um, getting back into experimenting into things. And it was interesting because, you know, in program we talk, in recovery we talk about it was fun until it wasn't fun, mm-hmm. right? It was fun, then fun with problems, and then and it was a lot of problems. problems. Yeah. So at this point, it was a lot of just fun. And there were moments of taking it too far. I think one of the first times I drank again, I was at the beach with some friends, and and I got blackout, spins, all that stuff, like, really quick. And I remember people saying, like, you know, Evan, like, why can't you, why are you like this, Right. And, um, and of course, just thinking like, oh, I just need another swig and that won't hurt so bad to hear that. And, um, and so fast forward 21, I got my first DUI and I remember having this, uh, this moment of, uh, like, boy, I really screwed up. Like, this is not good. Like I having the, the wind knocked out of me emotionally and, um, it was a weird thing, but, you know, first time DUI in San Diego, it's just really a slap on the wrist. And so I kind of... Especially for a white kid. Yeah, right. And um, I, I mean, I can't remember what the fine was, or I think there was like two or three days of community service, but uh, but just jumped right back into being a fun college student and, and traveling and, and doing all kinds of stuff. And surf, at this point, surfing was my new thing. So I was mm-hmm. surfing multiple times a week. Um, guitar was still a, a big thing, but, you know, I had a big friend group at this point and, and I would throw big parties at my house and I was like really this king of social mm-hmm. skills and, uh, I felt, and still really into the power positivity. And then I graduated, um, got into a corporate job and started to realize that being an adult is a little different and, uh, got into cocaine, got into drinking a lot, drinking on school, on work nights, um, and that's when it became more problems. Calling in sick. I never called in sick, but I was hung over a lot. And that um, affects your productivity. Yeah. And, and I got into sales. I'm, I'm a salesperson and I love sales because there's this huge outgoing part mm-hmm. of it. Um, and, and ironically sales means you are like a chameleon, right? You adjust yourself to your crowd. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of something I was really good at doing when it Putting came on to a show. Putting on a show, exactly. Knowing, okay, what's the goal? What do I need to do? Who do I need to be to get what mm-hmm. I need? And um, How many times do I need to use their first name in a sentence? Yeah, right? Or just, uh, you know, the way you talk, the way you hold yourself, the charm. Mm-hmm. People might call it being flirty. Um, but anyways, you know, things just started to get a little darker. And they got a little progressively darker and darker. And then it got to the point where, um, you know, it was so interesting when it came to relationships, it was very transactional. And I, I always gravitated towards the girls that seemed the least available, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was this, like, I wanted to win something that I had to win, right? Like, I don't know how to describe it. I think a thousand people are nodding their head right yeah, now going, like, yes. And, and it's funny because there were people that were amazing friends and there were, you know, very, very lovely and, and honest and genuine, but it was almost kind of like, I thought, nah, that's too easy. Like, like I don't deserve that. Right. I have to go for something that, um, I have to point my direct, my interest in something that I have to like really fight for and like mm-hmm. really, you know, convince them to love me. Cause that's yes. how I had kind of trained myself. And, uh, you know, I'm skipping over a lot of amazing, great, fun memories. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I, and I, and it's one of those things where I don't mean to mischaracterize how amazing and fun and awesome and abundant my life has been, even through the dark times. But, you know, the conversation we're having now is what it was like, how rock bottom was. And, um, you know, I met my fiance, uh, and was able to cover up the drinking and the drug use when I was around her. And I mean, she, I don't think you were able to cover it up around her. I was able to like in a pitiful way, like, I mean, we're talking, we would watch a TV show. She would fall asleep and then I would drink to blackout while she's asleep. And so I don't think she ever like, I mean, she saw me sloppy and annoying a few times, but for nine months that we were together, um, you know, I kind of held it together. And there, there were a couple moments that we would go out and party, party. Um, and I would do blow and things like that, but it, you know, the, the true stories of me, like really all problems for that, I I was able to kind of keep it under wraps. And also too, before I met her, um, I went through this kind of not a crisis, but I left my hometown and I completely left that friend group. And, you know, I spent half my time in San Diego and half my time in San Francisco. And I had two different friend groups and they didn't know about each other. Maybe they did, but I was able to kind of be two different people in these two different environments that weren't, weren't home. So, so I got to like masquerade, play this role for however long, maybe a year or two. You that took that the lasted. show on the road. I took the show on the road. Exactly. And it was a lot of fun. You know, I mean, there were so many fun memories in San Diego and San Francisco. I, I, I look back on them fondly, but I also look back on them and I remember it was fun until 10 PM and then it got kind of ugly or until later in the night or, um, you know, a couple friend, a couple friend uh friendships i i burned because i was just being selfish and things like that and uh so anyways fast forward i'm dating alicia nine months goes by um you know and i'm also holding together this act as we like to go wine tasting right i was a member at a couple wineries <laughs> i love the camouflage of right? wine for the alcoholic because oh, that's what i used it's I'm not, not an alcoholic i'm just classy that's why i have 24 cases of wine stored in a temperature controlled locker <laughs> <laughs> and it's like um going to malibu wines and wine tasting with a horde of people was an activity, right? Um, drinking at a dive bar late at night by yourself. Oh, that, that that's hard. Good. That's yeah, hard yeah, to yeah. spin. That's hard to spin. Exactly. But, but, um, so in any event, I was really into that. And, and, uh, you know, it's so funny that I just mentioned Malibu wines because my last, uh, sanctioned drink, I guess you could say was at Malibu wines on a Saturday. Um, day drank the whole time, uh, went home to my parents' house. Uh, Alicia was there with some other people and I blacked out cause I kept drinking wine. And then kind of around midnight, I got back up and I thought, Oh, I got to go to the store and grab something. Got in the car, went for a drive, realized I didn't have my wallet, turned around and in the neighborhood, you know, I know this neighborhood really well. And I felt the need not to stop at this one stop sign. And sure enough, people on bicycles are going through the the crosswalk and I went right through one of them and uh, hit them hit yeah I hit a guy on a bicycle and I mean my heart's beating out of my chest right now because four and a half almost five years later I feel that moment and it was this like <sighs> what just happened I can't, I can't rewind what were the severity of the injuries so I pulled over and thank God 
I did not really hurt him. He was a couple years younger than me, and I don't know what they were doing, but um, and I actually knew one of them as the younger brother of somebody from the neighborhood I knew. Um, but in any event, the cops got called. I got put in handcuffs again, thinking, oh, I'll just get out again tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. And then I'm driving to the police station with this uh, police officer, and he's telling me, oh, no, this is a felony. It's a DUI with bodily injury. And so that was just a complete kick in the gut. I go into the, the, the cell. I'm sitting there. I can't sleep. They uh, transport me to Ventura County Jail where I go into like the real cell block where you change and you put clothes on. And, and this was a Saturday night, so I'm going to be there until a judge can see me during the mm -hmm. week. And in Ventura County, you sit in the first 48 hours in suicide watch. So you're in one cell with one other person maybe for the first 48 hours. And you have these 10-minute breaks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, that was my bottom. Just, I mean, I still remember the white cinder block walls and the fluorescent light and the, I mean, I don't even think I was breathing air. Like I had nothing in me. I had no energy to lift a finger. I was completely out of moves and I knew it. And, you know, there was relief of it's over. I don't have to keep lying. I don't have to keep this charade mm -hmm. going. Um, there was complete defeat, knowing also, too, at the same time that uh, whatever career I think I have is probably over. Um, you know, I'm asking people during the lunch breaks and things like that, here's my situation, what do you think? And they're all thinking, oh, for sure nine months, for sure a year, for sure two years in county. And um, so I've kind of just admitted defeat. And, and uh, yeah, it's a weird feeling when you're completely out of moves, but, but you just accept it. And I, I didn't at all think about how could I fight this. I didn't at all think about what's the plan, what's the, the way to wiggle out of this. It was just this is. And, and um, yeah, I mean, feeling like you ruined your life and that there's nothing you can do to change it. This is real. This is now. I'd never experienced that before, ever. Um, and right now as I share this, I'm right. I'm in that cell. I'm in that eight by 12. It, oh man. Yeah. So I end up getting out a couple days later, like three or four days later. Um, immediately I see an attorney and the attorney says, um, this is really bad. Uh, what do you want to do? And I just, collapsed basically at that conference table between me and him and, and emotionally and just said, I am so tired of this. I, I don't even care what happens illegally. Um, I just need to not be in this space anymore. I can't keep having these same, these same things are happening and they're just haven't, they haven't happened to this scale. I've had these so many moments of clarity, um, whether it's begging God to get me off of whatever drugs I took and sitting on the, the, the bathroom floor, right? Praying God, get me out of here, mm -hmm. get me out of here, get me out of here, right? And then, of course, doing the same thing the next weekend. Um, but but now I had this opportunity to get out, and I felt like this attorney had an answer, maybe. So anyways, my attorney, he said, here's what you, you're going to do if you don't want to just twiddle your fingers, right? Uh, you're going to wear an ankle monitor that measures your sweat so we can prove that you hadn't had a drop of alcohol. Uh, you can start seeing a therapist right away and you can start going to support groups. And here's a sign off sheet that you can get signed off. Um, every time you go to these support groups, 
you're going to go every day. You're not going to take Sundays off. You're not going to take holidays off. And however long we can get proof that you've been going is going to help us. And um, so in any event, that night, my dad took me to a support group. And he had been sober for 18 years of my life, basically from when I was born to when I was 18. So he was very familiar with the community. And, um, you know, I went to this this hall not far from where I lived at the time. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I felt like religion was force-fed to me when I was a kid. So I, I rebelled naturally against it. But when I, was out, when I was in that jail cell, I remember the Lord's Prayer. Uh-huh. And of course, it's, it's the God get me out of here prayer at that point. Yeah. But um, I said it a million times. I remember like praying and, and um, journaling on this, the little pen, pencil that they give you and the little piece of papers. Mm-hmm. And it was just this giant prayer. But the Lord's Prayer was going through my head a bunch. And it was I, crazy that I remembered it. And anyways, at this uh, support group, at the very end, they all link up hands and they say the Lord's Prayer. And I cried so hard in that moment. I just could not. The floodgates opened. And what were the thoughts and uh, feelings you think that, that brought that about? I felt like for the first time, I didn't need something from this group. Like there wasn't, I didn't need their appraisal. I didn't need their acceptance. Like I was just here and everybody else in this room was just here. And, and we were, the show was over the show. Well, yeah, the show was over, but also suddenly it was like my guard came down and suddenly I realized I don't need anything from these people in the way of love and admiration and acceptance. Mm -hmm. They want the same thing that I want. And I just want to not be running this hamster wheel anymore. And, um, and I don't know if it, if it's the religious part of that prayer or if it's just the, you know, forgive me part of Mm -hmm. this. I mean, I really just came to terms with the fact that I was done and I wanted to seal up and, uh, you know, move forward. And, uh, yeah, there's just something emotionally so charged in that moment. And, uh, from then on out, I was going to all these meetings, um, got a sponsor and I got a sponsor who, you know, I didn't even ask him to be my sponsor. He just said, let's go to coffee and read the book. And we started reading the book and, and going through these steps and, you know, step one was a no brainer. I mean, I, I went through step one more or less by myself in that jail cell. I knew I was powerless and that, um, my life was completely unmanageable and, and, and I would do anything at any length. There was this gift of desperation. And mm-hmm. in the book, there were words like incomprehensible demoralization. I mean, I know, you know what that means, mm-hmm. but when I heard that incomprehensible demoralization, the first thing I went through my mind was that, uh, look in the mirror at two thirty when you come home from the bar and you're just pitiful. You're just like, ugh, what is, who is that guy in the mirror? Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, I, I mean, for the first time, I, I, somebody articulated that for the first time in my life. I go to these meetings and people are sharing about these insecurities and, and these really deep things about how uh, drinking and using was, was a way for them to cope with deeper things, right? The, the, tra- the traumas of their childhood. And at this point also, I'm not even thinking about boarding school and, and how that affected me. I start seeing a therapist and I'd never really seen a therapist. Um, so I'm just naturally telling my life story mm-hmm. and, and almost holding court like, oh, somebody's here to listen to me. 
And, uh, and I mean, my therapist is so great because she doesn't just listen. She'll interject and, and point me in directions. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it was really scary because I'm starting to thaw out that first year. I'm starting to use this growth mindset that I had previously been diving into with like all the power of positivity, self-help stuff, but now with something real and like now having to face the ugly side of my life and things that aren't empowering to feel and things that aren't, um, a bandaid. I mean, duct tape is really effective, but it's not going to keep the wings on a 747. And and that's what self-help books were for me, right? It was really effective to to feel better right now in the moment or Mm -hmm. to to get some quick confidence. Um, But I had to kind of come to terms with the fact that I had spent a long time skewing myself into one direction. It was going to take a long time to skew myself back. And the other night at that meeting that that you were referring to, you... um, you mentioned that I'm a seeker and mm-hmm. Paul, I can't tell you how much that made me feel heard. And f- I felt so seen in that moment uh-huh. um, because there's something, I guess maybe I'm just good at that. Like I'm good at constantly wanting more mm-hmm. and uh, yes, that can be addictive and things like that. But, but when in, the intent is good. Yeah. When the I intent think. is good. And um, you know, I have almost five years of sobriety. I started seeing that therapist maybe two weeks after uh, the incident. And since then, the onion just keeps getting peeled and peeled and peeled and peeled. And, you know, it was really difficult in my relationship because suddenly I'm changing at a rapid rate. And and my fiance now, who wasn't my fiance then, uh, she has needs and I'm out at meetings. I'm out spilling my soul to strangers, to mm-hmm. a therapist, and, and she's kind of looking around saying, where are you? And so that was an adjustment period that I thought I was going to lose. Um, so did, how did you begin to integrate involving her into your inner life and your struggles and your fears? And You know... Or have you? I have. Yeah, we're really close. We're, we're engaged, and uh, and it's really an amazing it's a relationship that I've never experienced before in the sense that um, there's so much depth there now. I mean, there's been a lot of growth on her side and my side too. Um, But like, I don't have to be somebody I'm not to get something that I feel like now I I give to her, right? Mm -hmm. That closeness, that intimacy of emotional closeness, I guess. Um, And and she's an emotionally available person. Yeah. Yeah, she is. (laughs) I, um, I, I, I really lucked out in that way. Um, I think, you know, the, uh, the crazy thing about that first year of, of therapy was that everything was thawing out and, um, you know, I made some amazing connections with men, uh, men's group that, that I see you at pretty regularly. And, you know, it was just a depth that I never experienced in my life, be it through friendships, through a relationship. Um, the relationship with my parents was changing. It was obviously they were super proud of me. But, um, you know, also, too, there's a legal case happening right. in that first year where I'm going to court. And uh, and that was really scary and full mm-hmm. of anxiety. And, you know, there were moments where I couldn't sleep because I just thought, man, what am I going to do? But the program and the 12 Steps 
were a, were a way almost for me to distract from that and just say, hey, we're going to do this one at a time. Mm-hmm. Easy does it. Whatever happens is what happens. And we're just going to be honest and we're going to give this our best shot. You know, one of the things that I noticed early on in that first year that, that you were coming was that you made efforts rather than just showing up and sitting there and listening, which is certainly a part of it, mm-hmm. showing up and listening, but, you know, saying, I'm going to be the guy that takes the coffee commitment. I'm going to be mm-hmm. the guy that does this. And and you did it consistently. And that was just a really cool thing to witness. I love when I see that happen because, uh, you know, nine times out of 10, that person's going to be okay if they just keep doing that. And. I love that and I appreciate that so much. Um, but that wasn't me. Like that was other people telling me this is what you should do. This is what you, you know, follow our footsteps. And these are the things that we do. We raise our hand to share. Right. We take commitments. We try to shake hands when we show right. up, come early, leave late. Um, so you didn't want to do any of those things, but you did it anyway. I, yeah. I mean, there were days where I really didn't want to do those things. Um, but also I think that's pretty normal though. Yeah, it is normal. But, um, these were my new friends, like my life. Now I have so many different amazing friends and old friends and new friends. Um, but so much of my life now, the depth is friends in recovery. And, and so in some way I really looked forward to going to these support groups because I could have dinner with the guys, uh, in the hour prior, I could hang out with them afterwards. Um, so it was very much a social thing for me because when I first got sober, I was really afraid that my life was going to become super boring because I had gotten all this attention from being like the host wherever I went and going to bars and, and drinks on me and, and gaining all this attention and excitement. Mm -hmm. And suddenly now my life was very different but it was full of quality and not quantity. And, um, you know, the thing with therapy, therapy has hit so many different parts of my life in a way that 12 step programs, um, are amazing, but you know, there are certain things that they just don't address unless you have a great sponsor who, who has the time and the understanding, you know, I think as men, we like to fix things. We Mm -hmm. like to handle things. If there's something wrong, we, we like to, achieve what we need to achieve to get the result we want to get. And, um, you know, therapy kind of taught me that you don't need to change and fix things like give it space, feel it and just feel it like it's okay. We don't need, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you don't need to change the fact that you're feeling discomfort. Exactly. And, and so like right now you and I are staring at each other talking Mm -hmm. And there's still a feeling of, am I going to mischaracterize myself? Am I going to hang on? Am I going to pause for too long after saying something? And the listener might think, uh, you know, what was that about? There's still those feelings. Um, And instead of ignoring those feelings, like I just verbalized it. And that just made it so much easier for me to just be honest with you. You know, what's funny is that's a tool in stand-up comedy when you are having a tough time with the crowd is to address the fact that you are not doing well with the crowd. Yeah. I mean, it diffuses the situation for it sure. Does. It does. I think in yeah. almost any situation we're in, we want honesty, whether yeah. we are the person opening our mouths or the people listening. Well, and always, I think other people are thinking about me. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case. Like, you know, therapy has taught me that kind of, I mean, I, I know this is really heavily debated, but nothing is personal. 
Like if someone says something horrible to me or does something horrible to me, something's going on with them, yeah. right? It's not the rejection that I think it is. It's not the personal uh, vitriolic, spiteful right. thing. And, and um, Now, if it's done in a diplomatic, loving way, I, I certainly give it a lot more weight than sure. if it's somebody snapping at me and of saying, course. why are you always such an yeah, asshole? Right? And, and it's, um, it's interesting because therapy was teaching me all these things and I was starting to connect the dots that, oh, this abandonment that I felt when I got sent to boarding school, this, um, you know, feeling of being less than with my you know perfect sister when I was really young. You know, I remember uh, memories of my dad teaching me how to do this chores and the chores, I would do it a certain way. And, you know, looking back, it was a half-ass way perhaps, but, you know, him grabbing the shovel and saying, no, you're doing it wrong. This is how you do it. And, and feeling like hyper um, sensitive in those moments and feeling like I can't do anything right. And then connecting that to how, as a young adult, I'm doing all these things because I'm trying to prove to other people that I'm worthy, right? I'm starting to get into fitness and running marathons. I mean, I was sadistic with uh, fitness before I got sober in a way where I would purposely run when I was hungover to, you know, run the shame away. And, uh, and, and I still am really into fitness, but now it's a completely different, you know, I don't treat it as a way to punish myself. What percentage of extreme athletes do you think don't have approval issues? I'm, I'm sure we all deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really amazing because in the triathlon and ultra running community, it's a lot of people in recovery. Um, I mean, some of my heroes when I got sober, like Rich Roll, um, I mean, there's a bunch of others, but I mean, these are people that got sober and found an outlet because, because the other thing too, is I have so much energy and I have to get that energy out Mm -hmm. and I feel, and there's also this, this, um, you know, I, I'm not proud of the, the judgmental part of me that likes to rate things and judge, Mm -hmm. compare. Um, But I I naturally, if I don't get energy out, I'm just antsy, right? And Mm -hmm. I judge things and things aren't enough or, you know, and there's um, now this healthy view that I have of sports and athletics. And and now it's almost like a spiritual experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like I went through all these different phases of, of being really interested in my heart rate and time and pace and all these things. And now the most fun that I have are mountain runs where it's nobody cares about your time, right? It's just a matter of how far can you go and how much can you tap into nature? And, you know, if I go for a trail run and I see deer or coyotes, man, that is now like Christmas day for me, right? I love wildlife. I love nature. And so there's this, um, this joy and this wonder that's attached to something that used to be this way to like punish myself or, or to, to fill in a void. Um, and so anyways, going back to the therapy, I was able to connect all these dots and, and I was able to see, okay, at work, being a salesperson, when I present in front of men in their, let's say their 60s, right? There's this feeling I have at the boardroom when I'm presenting that they're looking at me like I'm this kid, like right? Like your dad looked at you it's, shoveling. It's, exa- it's my dad, right? It's exactly my dad. Yeah. And uh, and I have a great relationship with my dad, but there's just this, this feeling and, and being, being able to connect those dots. Um, 
I'm able to create space. And of course, I'm also really good at trying to intellectualize things and think, oh, okay, so this must mean that. So I'm just going to try not to think that. But then my therapist would say, um, you need to just feel it. Like, feel that child, that scared kid. You know, when when I felt like interacting with someone, they had ulterior motives or maybe uh, they were looking behind me as they're talking to me. You know, there's a feeling that this person wants to abandon me. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to tap into that with a therapist in their office <laughs> um, or with the pandemic over Zoom. And for that, the light bulb to go off and and so many times to tell the therapist, hey, this is what happened this week. Here was a scenario and then uh, illuminate this tendency or this uh, this thing that, you know, I, I keep coming back to. A lot of them are things that we've talked about many times we've dealt with. But, you know, there's still that voice and the voice maybe isn't driving the car anymore, but is in the back seat. Mm-hmm. But it has a voice. Right. Sure. And um, and so it's just so interesting because. About a year ago, and I'm kind of skipping here, there, and everywhere right now, but a year ago, she shared with me this YouTube link for this miniseries on YouTube. Uh, it's called Group, and it was all about group therapy, and it was actors with a real therapist. And um, and she just said, watch this. And let's... Are they talking about their real lives, or are they uh, portraying it, people? They're portraying. Yeah, it's okay. like a show. I'll catch you. But the um, the therapist in the show is a real practicing group therapist. Gotcha. And um, so anyway, she sends me this link, and she says, let's talk about it next time. Just let me know what you think. And uh, so I proceed to watch the whole season of this miniseries on YouTube, and I cried at multiple times mm-hmm. watching it. I mean, just seeing the interactions with these people and, and the volatility. I mean, the anger that people would share with each other and crosstalk and mm-hmm. – it wasn't real, but it was so real to listen to and to watch. And um, hold that thought right where you are. What wound up happening with the case? Oh, so it turned out the guy didn't really get hurt all that bad at all. Mm-hmm. It turned out that he had also ran the stop sign going mm-hmm. through the crosswalk, which was kind of crazy. Um and so they dropped it from a felony to a misdemeanor. So it became my second DUI with a high BAC. So I, I had all these fines. Um, for jail, I just served time. Or wait, no. I got sentenced to 30 days in prison or in jail. And um, it got transferred to house arrest. So I was on house arrest for like and three was weeks. was your license suspended? Yeah, for like two weeks. Two. Or for uh, two years. Okay. And I had a, one of those breathalyzers in the car for okay. those two years. Because they give you like a... It's gone for a couple months, and then for two years after that, you can drive to work and to the grocery store and to pertinent things as long mm-hmm. as you have a breathalyzer. Gotcha. And, and it's interesting because I always glaze over that mm-hmm. when I tell my story. I always glaze over it because not that it wasn't important, but at that time when all this stuff was happening, so much other growth was going on that it kind of got overshadowed by this like, you know, making amends to my sister was it it blew my life away right and and it was this conversation way. in a great way it was a conversation that she wasn't really expecting um and i remember the weight coming off my shoulders cuz basically telling her like i am so sorry for all the times that i did x y and z um cuz when i came back from boarding school too the the roles had kind of switched in the family she suddenly now became um she had grown into herself and and had a boyfriend and and had her own interests and 
my parents were having a difficult time with her. And so she was, you know, pushing back mm. with them and I was now the golden child. Mm. And so there was obviously a lot of apology there because she had a lot of resentment that made me resent her right. at that time. Right. And so, you know, this whole legal case, it, it I don't know. Like I, I, I'm so grateful that I got off so easy and I mean, you could call it a hundred different things. Um, but in some way I kind of felt like I have to keep going full bore into my recovery and therapy. Um, and more of these kind of amazing things are going to keep yes. happening. Right. So let's go back to, to group therapy, yeah. the place where I paused you. Yeah. Yeah, so you I were watched blown this away. series, I was blown away. And basically, the crux of it, because at that point, I had been seeing my therapist for four years, right? This is about six months, seven, eight, nine months ago. And, uh, you know, the things that some people go to therapy for three months, and then they're done, right? Mm -hmm. And some people go for longer, and then they're done. I don't know if I'm ever going to stop going to therapy just because mm -hmm. it's such a beneficial, like a maintenance program. Mm -hmm. And, and I am grateful for the fact that financially I can swing it. Some people can't, but, um, there was this thing, you know, it's, it's one thing to go to medical school, but it's another thing to be practicing surgery in the surgery room mm -hmm. and group therapy was suddenly now that because it's one thing to talk about, Hey, at this situation in work, this is what came up. This is how I felt. Uh, you know, I didn't really give it much time to sit in that feeling. Um, but I'll try to next time. Whereas in group, it's like you're in surgery and, and you're the surgeon and you're feeling what you're feeling and it's all in real time and you're suggested to share about it in real time and give it space in real time. It's really hard to let yourself feel something and to completely let go of what other people are probably thinking about you mm -hmm. or my fear of what they're thinking of me. And also accept that you expressed it in the way that you expressed it instead of a yeah. hundred times afterwards going, why didn't I use this word? Why didn't I use that word? Oh, I tried too hard to be funny. I, blah, I, blah, blah, blah. I felt that just the other day in group therapy. I felt like after we signed off and I thought I totally mischaracterized myself and and uh but you know that's the thing about therapy it's not about assigning this was good or this is bad it's about everything just is nothing is personal and if something comes up it just comes up and what oh be curious what is that thing that's coming up oh boy i'm i'm feeling really insecure like oh that's interesting is that tied to anything that i know right is that a tendency of mine to feel and and sometimes you get frustrated in therapy because I feel like I'm dealing with the same stuff I dealt with back in March of 2018. But also therapy has taught me that it is, it's okay. And, yeah. and these are the same things that are going to keep coming up. And, and my thought is issues get put there in layers. Why mm. wouldn't they be taken off in layers? Yeah. And, and it's not a matter of, I mean, yes, you want to change behavior when you change your life, but you know, you can't, erase certain things that are hardwired into you. Like in moments where that scared little girl or that scared little boy is, is shaking on the inside. You can't change that. You, mm -hmm. you can give it space and the awareness. And, and it's really interesting for me because 
Um, and I think the most growth comes from the awareness of, oh, I see what I'm feeling right now. And I know the general tendency I have to be driven by this feeling, to act in a particular way, like uh, people pleasing or trying to do something to, to get what I want. But I'm going to try to hold off and not do that thing and just stay composed and, and let this thing through. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a practice. What, if anything, has the group in your uh, group therapy called you out on? I mean, the biggest thing is is not verbalizing enough. So like the first couple sessions, uh, there was a lot of hostility and infighting between people in the group, uh, between the person who runs the group, uh, people basically sharing oh, we didn't know this new person was going to join us. We feel like our voices are going to be lessened. And there was a lot of you know people straight up sharing their emotions, feeling I'm angry at you because of X, Y, Z. I'm resentful at you because of this. And I mean, nobody is hitting below the belt. It's nothing like that. But, you know, there's anger being mm-hmm. expressed. And, um, you know, it's so crazy because uh, when someone said, how do you feel, Evan? I said... I, I, I'm watching my parents fight right now. This is the little kid watching mom and dad yelling in the kitchen. And I know intellectually it's not personal. It's not about me. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but feel like it is. Your body doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, your body doesn't know that. And and I'm watching all this volatility and anger and, and people who are mad at each other mm-hmm. or, or mad at, at whatever it is. Um. And I'm the common denominator here. You know, I'm the person that entered the fold. And oh, now you were the one mad. they were upset oh, about somebody they bringing were, brought oh, in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and okay. again, they're they're reassuring me. They're saying, it's not you. You seem like a great guy, this and that. But I know, resent your existence. I resent your existence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I resent. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that was really, that was really hard. Um, and, but then again, like group therapy is like, you're out of med school and now you're in surgery. And because when they say, how you feel? And then they asked, how do you feel? When I said, I feel like I'm watching my parents fight and I'm seven-year-old me. I, and, and parents fight. That, that's just natural. Sure. Some people fight worse than others. But, um, but it was an experience that I had not felt in a long time. And, and also, too, um, you know, when people interject because they want to be heard and you're in the middle of sharing something, you know, you, it, it rattles you a little bit. You're like, yeah. well, gee, I didn't get my sentence completely out or I didn't finish what I was finishing. I, I kind of resent you a little bit uh, for cutting me off. Right. And um, and it's a practice like I'm still not there 100 percent in allowing myself to feel that and to express that. Because the other thing, too, about me is generally I'm a very positive, abundant, um, happy-go-lucky, easy-going person. Um, but I'm really judgmental against anger. You know, when I see people lose their temper, you know, I'm really judgmental of like, look at this guy. He's pathetic, right? You can't hold yourself together just to mm-hmm. get this this thing that you want. And that's a really, I'm not proud of that judgment. And, and I'm, you, group therapy is a way that I'm, finding that there that's in me and and that's probably why i don't like it so much is because i'm ashamed of what's in me and i feel like it you know maybe 
And, and not maybe, but you know, when I was young, I couldn't express that because if I did, I felt like, um, I felt like I would lose my value to my parents, to my peers, to my, you know, the, the people that I wanted attention and love from. If I was out of line, if I didn't do what was expected of me, they would abandon me or they wouldn't be there for me. And, and maybe that was reality or maybe that was just in my head. But the point is, is that that's how I felt. And, um, you know, my parents, I think, did a, as best of a job as they could. You know, they, they don't like to talk about the boarding school thing that often because I get it. It's going to be shame. hard for them. Sure. Yeah. And, but it's interesting because um, last February, I went back. I drove to the desert. Uh, it was kind of right on the, the border between California and Nevada near Death Valley. And my fiance and I went because uh, we went on a road trip to Death Valley. And I was so fearful of going back to this place because um, I knew – like I had told myself through college and through the time after when I came back, you know, I'd, I'd kind of start over. And, and I would have all these dreams and nightmares that I was back. Mm -hmm. um, and – there was, after a while, this feeling of the boarding school experience never happened. And, and the whole life before then never really happened. Like, it was just so separate in every way. And um, I remember sharing with my therapist, like, a week or two before we went, because I had only decided kind of at the last minute that I wanted to carve a couple hours out to drive to this, this facility. I, it wasn't even the same boarding school. They had changed hands and um, and she just said, be open to feelings and, and, you know, if you need to journal in the parking lot, journal in the parking lot, but just connect to the physical feeling of that moment. And we went there and uh, it was real. I, I know that that sounds silly, no, but I, I didn't think it was real. Like this was this thing that I would have memories of in my dreams and I felt like I had I had mentally talked myself out of the actual memories, and and I had um, I I remember I pulled into this parking lot, and just the silhouette of the mountains in the distance, and that dry desert air, and the the empty breeze, it, it just completely came over me, and and I wasn't able to walk the grounds, but I was able to like kind of look over the see through the fence and see what was going on. Um, and it was like, this place was just stopped in time. The gazebo, the, the basketball courts, the everything about it. And, um, I cried so hard because I felt like I was picking up. I, I was picking up that 15, 16 year old kid and giving him permission to, to actually leave that place. And uh, because at this point now I'm four years sober, I have four years of therapy under my belt. Um, I'm in a, a truly a healthy relationship with someone who truly loves me for who I am. And I love me for who I am. And I've found things that I'm good at and that I like to do and things I'm not good at, but that I like to do. And there's this practice now in my life of... Um, I can create space for everything, the uncomfortable, the awesome, the not so awesome. And so I'm sitting in this parking lot bawling my eyes out because I'm finally able to, to take this kid, this, this ghost of myself, and let him into the car, put him in the backseat, and 
commence on our road trip through Death Valley. Buddy, I appreciate you coming by and, and sharing all this. And uh, uh, it's good to walk this path with you, man. And I love you. I love you too, man. Thank you so much. Many, many thanks to uh, to Evan. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I know, uh, I know, I did. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself the power of 1 p.m. And about his anxiety, he writes, I'm like a cable car with that zapping electricity coursing through a wire I'm connected to. About his sex addiction, it's a pale, pathetic, gross, unethical imitation of the real thing, and I can't stop. Thank you for those. This is uh, same survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Quiet Guy. And about his anxiety, he writes, My body feels like I am running away from a tiger, but all I'm doing is sending an email. Uh, about his autism, like being shoved onto the stage and everyone around me is doing a play expecting me to do my part. And I don't know my lines and everyone is annoyed at me for that. Those are great. Thank you for that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as Solomon Sadsack. Um, and they ask, uh, when you're having suicidal ideation, what keeps you here? People usually say family and pets when asked this question. And you might too, but when you're depressed, are you able to think of other reasons to stay too? They could be specific and concrete or more spiritual or philosophical. Or do you just feel those suicidal longings until your mood shifts, either because of meds or because of time passing, etc.? I guess I'm just asking if you've ever been able to pull yourself self out of a depression by restructuring your thoughts seems fucking herculean even if you do have support well it's kind of like i shared uh, be, before the interview with uh, evan um you know it's it's hard to um uh help ahead with the very same head that needs help um i know for me a to keep my depression in check, uh, I need community. I need a sense of purpose by also helping people in my community and nut jobs. Uh, I need to take my meds. I need to exercise, pray, meditate. Um, I need to open up about what it is that I'm feeling. And there's times when I'm doing all of those things and I, and I don't feel suicidal, but I feel a lack of vitality that if I then add to it by getting down on myself, by saying I shouldn't feel this way, it makes it even worse. And if I've learned anything from dealing with depression for decades, it's that this is the very time I should be nice to myself. If I'm tired, take a fucking nap. Don't go, oh, you're not doing enough stuff. So, you know, self-compassion is, is really important. And if there are if there are things that I can do that I have control over, even if it's something as small as just making sure I take a shower that day, I try to do it. And sometimes that will ease it a little bit, but most of the time, it's just riding it out. It's just riding it out. And the worst thing I can do is future trip and say it's going to be this way forever because it never is the same way forever. 
hope that helps. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Neurotic Nancy. I love her children's tales. Um, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I am not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not thinking enough. I'm not reading enough. I'm not appreciating enough. I'm not buying, saving, working, relaxing, socializing, meditating, cleaning, changing, reflecting enough. I can't sit on the couch for five minutes without reaching for my phone to look at things that make me think, quote, I need to learn how to cook better. I need to take more pictures. Why don't I know how to decorate? I need to learn how to save for retirement. Will I ever be able to afford a house? Am I brushing my teeth correctly? Am I killing the oceans by drinking bottled water and using Clorox wipes? Because it's so damn convenient. Should I be having more sex with my husband? At what age do I need to start getting Botox? What if I do get Botox and they inject it into a nerve that paralyzes my face forever? Why can't I remember any Anything I learned in history class? Am I developing early onset Alzheimer's? If I don't have kids or a job, then is there really any excuse for not writing a novel and learning how to make furniture and becoming an expert on healthy eating? Why does everyone else have their life figured out and seem so happy? What is wrong with me and how do I fix it? Unquote. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, this is from Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as squandering through the forest about their anxiety. Like there are a hundred copies of myself, all blindfolded and all running in different directions. About their bulimia. Like the only way to feel like I exist is to binge, and the only way to be worthy of existing is to purge. About their anorexia. I can commit suicide if I do it so slowly no one notices. About their cutting, the urge to concentrate a huge, diffuse pain into something I can see and touch. About experiencing sexual bias, like the only way I can get my boss to not sexually harass me is to act like a macho asshole, even though acting like that feels almost as bad as being harassed about their bipolar mania, like my thoughts are balloons, all colors, that press out of my mouth and my head and my fingertips until they fill a whole room with their squeaks and static. Wow. Wow, those are amazing. Snapshot from their life. Lately, I'm sitting in cafes, depressed, trying to make lists to jumpstart my motivation, but instead scrawling phrases about suicide, like, I'm 14, not 34. And yet if a friend comes over to talk to me, I can laugh and seem fine. Thank you for those. Yeah, the, the pretending everything is okay. This is a happy moment filled out by Chrissy T., and uh, she writes, This year I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. It came as a shock to me as I was just going to start therapy to help with my restlessness. I thought I would be in therapy for a few sessions to get some advice and then move on. Turns out my restlessness is really hypomania and I will have this illness forever. So how does this lead to happy moments? Over this past year, I have learned so much about myself and the illness. I'm learning how to manage the symptoms and how to ask for help. 
I'm healthier than I've ever been. Learning about my illness has brought me closer to my husband and my daughter and allowed us to have many wonderful moments this year where I was more present, engaged, and happier. We've played board games, gone to amusement parks. I learned how to play Minecraft, as instructed by my daughter, of course. Enjoyed date nights with my husband and so much more. I'm not always in my head anymore. Don't feel like I'm missing out on life. It isn't always easy, and I will always have the ups and downs. But putting in the effort in therapy and taking my medication as prescribed has made a huge difference. I now look forward to what is to come. Holy shit, is my stomach making noises. Uh, This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as life neurotic. And about their depression... Uh, They write, upon realizing I'm too depressed to come, I let my vibrator just run into feet until my depressed mind latches onto the fact that I'm wasting electricity and I feel guilty for letting a dinosaur die in vain. Oh my God, that is fucking brilliant. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Notes to Dumbledore, Dinkledorf. Um about their depression. I think it's a woman that filled this out. About their depression. Like the rest of the world has been given a ladle to soak up the soup of life (laughs) and I got a fork. About their ADD. I'm running out of excuses to explain why I'm late to work all the time. About their OCD. If I don't count my steps and sips of water in tens, my father will murder me, my mother will kill herself, and the rest will die in a fire. (laughs) about their PTSD, a violent bombardment of so many images and feelings all at once while nothing within your body works nor does it belong to you anymore. This one is fucking heavy about being a sex crime victim. Listening to him finish himself off to my naked body just in time for recess. Holy fuck. About depersonalization, derealization syndrome. Like I purchased a ticket to a one-woman show based on my life, but I'm the only one who attended, and I can never leave. Wow. Wow. Thank you for those. And then finally, uh, I'm going to list some of my loves. I love the feeling of possibility and freedom being in a new city on the first day with nothing planned. I love getting the coffee shop's comfiest chair. I love when you earn a skittish animal's trust and it falls asleep in your lap. I love when I apologize after doing something wrong and my soul feels clean instead of lingering that I'm a fuck-up and worse than everybody else. I love a mid-century piece of furniture made with a subtle wood like pear wood. I like driving my own I love driving my old car and knowing that whenever I do get a new one, I will feel like I earned it. I love someone seeing... (laughs) I love seeing someone start to heal their trauma and the light coming on in their eyes. I love when a small dog's head is coned, the way it sways back and forth when they walk, like a sad little cowboy. I love telling someone you love them and seeing them really take it in. 
I love a top-end wood or auto shop where any idea can be realized because every tool is there. I love getting through a huge list of unread emails and feeling like you earned a night of TV binging. I love when I tell my girlfriend I'm struggling with something and she doesn't try to fix my feelings, she just listens and supports me. I love when I wake up and a body pain is gone. I love when you finish putting away the last thing from a grocery store. And I love when a dog prances to another room like it's royalty and on a tight schedule. Well, I hope you guys like those. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And uh, just never forget, uh, if you're struggling, that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.